Anishutes, Chapter 8. I followed the staccato clicking of high heels on the floor of the hallway. We passed by the arms room, and I gave it a longing look, hoping my time would come soon. We went down into the basement, and the clicking stopped. Our company commander's wife turned to face Private Jeffries, Specialist Jenkins, and myself. She pulled a key from her purse and opened a storage room. We're giving keys to civilians now, I thought to myself. The CO's wife decided since her husband was in Afghanistan that she was in charge of Rear D. She soothed her angst about her husband's deployment by making sure we cleaned his office up at HQ every week, even though he wasn't there and wouldn't be there until the spring or summer of next year. A naive new private had complained to the inspector general about the civilian dependent ordering soldiers around, but it never came to anything. All she had to do was smile and chortle to the 21-year-old lieutenant in charge of Rear D, and the hormonal little weirdo told us that, in a sense of community, something about helping out the wives, blah blah. Anyway, like always, nothing changed. Above ground, the old fascist buildings of the post had been turned into near dorm rooms for the Xbox generation of soldiers. The Burger King, the rec center, they all seemed new and familiar, but below ground the old stone walls remain unplastered and gritty with dust. The tiny windows near the ceiling still held the plate glass that the Reich had stared through when they were forced to take shelter during air raids or do whatever it is Nazis did. There were chases for modern Romex and Ethernet cables, and someone had piped in a fire sprinkler system, but those rough-hewn rocks still seemed to resonate from a time when slaves and conscripts quarried and labored to build up Hitler's vision. The truth was that as long as the CO's wife wore those skirts and heels that clicked on the tiles, most guys were happy to drag buckets and mops down to the subterranean depths or up to the attic of exposed rafters to swab and stare as she Facebooked on her phone. Today, though, she wanted us to clean out a storage room we hadn't touched. If you guys see anything in there, it's yours. Otherwise, everything needs to go, she called as we filed into the room. The door slowly swung shut as we listened to her heels click down the hall. What, does he need another room to keep his golf clubs in? Jeffries asked as we surveyed the room full of big cardboard boxes and dust. It should have only taken until lunch to clean it all out, but in true army fashion, we were going to make it last all week. Jeffrey set about slashing open cardboard cases of MREs and divorcing their contents of M&Ms and Skittles. I left Jeffrey's behind, hoping to find a place to be alone amid the cardboard boxes and other crap. I saw Jenkins already propped against the wall with his face resting on his forearms crossed over his knees. It reminded me of Private Springsteen, who was up in his room being babysat by Private Albert. If we were human, not army people, I would have asked Jenkins if he was okay. Maybe ask if he'd like to hang out with Springsteen and talk about sad guy stuff together. Or tell him how horrible I felt and ask if he would slide over and make some room for me on the pity bench. But I didn't. In the army, we were all alone together. I had over a thousand dollars sitting in my bank account. Money had just not been real interesting to me. I thought about cashing it all out and bribing Jenkins to use his arms room's key to let me into that dark little vault and do my thing. The problem is being the armorer made him responsible for that room and all the rifles in it, and the whole scheme would ultimately be traced back to him and blamed on him. I still thought about it for a while as I loomed over him under the bare light bulbs before choosing the next dial over to sit and stew alone in. The back of my uniform scraped down one of the old craggy walls as I slid into a squat in a darkened corner and pulled out the photocopy of Anna's picture I'd made from Springsteen's drawing of her. I stared at it all the time. It was the closest thing I had to her, no matter how grotesque. I kept the original in my room, not wanting to get smudged or damaged. I had a friend in basic training named Gomez. His son was born while we were there. 
He waited anxiously for pictures of his kid to arrive at mail call, and when they did, he showed the little ball of life with such pride to anyone who would look at it, even the drill sergeants. He carried the photo in the cargo pocket of his trousers while we climbed the high tower without nets or ropes. It rested in his trousers while we low-crawled through the tire chips for an hour and a half for some infraction someone in the platoon had made. It was in his sock at boot camp graduation. It was in his cargo pocket again when he was shot to death seven months later in Afghanistan when his position was overrun. I wonder if the Afghans had seen the picture of the soft little baby under a blue jaundice light when they searched Gomez's body. If they held it up and passed it around. If they commented on it. If an uncomfortable moment passed between them at all before they geared up and moved on. I held Anna's picture close to me, and under the buzzing of a dying light bulb, then buried my face into the back of my arms and scrunched my eyes shut. I heard myself hissing her name in the dim light. It was cold down there, and I let the frigid air wrap around me, teasing my elbows and tensing the muscles in my back. I wanted to sink into the old stones of the basement and sleep forever. Eventually, in the darkness, with my face on my arms, I began to feel a distinct draft to my left that reminded me of Anna's cold breath billowing under the overhang. I shot my head up. There was an old wooden wall locker next to me, and I pulled it open, hoping to see Anna inside, maybe watching me through some gap or hole. It was empty, except for a very old 220-volt vacuum and some buckets of spackle. I couldn't help but notice just how frosty it felt in there, though, like a meat locker. I reached in and felt the wood of the back panel and was surprised there was no frost on it, given how cold it was. I pried my fingertips between the locker and the stone wall and then pulled the locker away from it. More chilly vapor kissed the tops of my knuckles, and a very thin four-by-eight sheet of plywood was tacked to the rocky wall behind the locker. It was almost freezing to the touch. I looked over my shoulder and down the aisle of boxes along the wall. None of my battle buddies were in sight. I slipped my fingers between the flimsy plywood and the stones. It moved easily in my hands and bent against the flimsy tacks that anchored it to the wall. They made a token resistance until the sheeting snapped loose and a full-bodied chill came rolling out of the dark space. The frigidness hit like a sucker punch of icy darkness, and it almost was hard to breathe for a second. A passageway in the wall formed a rectangle of black in front of me. Stay out of the tunnels, I heard the first sergeant's voice echo in my mind. I thought it was all just myths and rumors from uneducated privates and NCOs, romantic lies left over from old war movies. I figured Springsteen had just slept in and lied about being lost somewhere. But as the cold air swirled around my fingertips, I felt a tingling run down my spine between my shoulder blades. My mind leapt at the thought of this being connected to Anna. After that, nothing else mattered. I pulled a tiny mag light from my ankle pocket and slid in between the plywood and the wall. The wonderful, horrible, vapory cold licked my face. I felt like a bloodhound chasing a scent. The familiar frigid sting of something I felt when I was around her. The way the air stood up on my neck and forearms when she touched me. I took another step forward into the darkness, wishing I could feel it all again. Above me in the gloom, I saw the bricked barrel vault of a whitewashed ceiling coated in gray, dirty cobwebs. A single light bulb, slathered with even more spider webs, hung from a fabric-covered wire. At the end of the short tunnel was a big steel door with rivets. I frowned as I neared it. No wonder the only thing blocking off the now-open passage behind me was a flimsy piece of wood. I shined the light above the riveted door and saw the spread wings of the Nazi eagle. Blinking in the darkness, I was surprised to see such a relic shining back at me, like an old movie prop. In dark corners of downtown, you could still see the eagle with spread wings. The swastikas they had perched atop had been hacked clean away, but not down here. Someone had made a token effort to smash the old swirling elbows of the swastika, but you could still see the splayed spinning tips beneath the eagle. 
I was sure the mean old door had to be locked or blocked or barred somehow. So with no hesitation, sans all the due reverence for breaching a portal to something so foreboding, I reached out and yanked on its lever. Something inside of it clattered, and then the door pulled towards me on old groaning hinges. I cursed under my breath as the groan faded in the dark. Was this real? Perhaps this was all some desperate sense of loss and craziness imploding in my mind in an attempt to connect with Anna. I looked back towards the light behind me, wondering if I should get a battle buddy, phone a friend, try to get someone else to see this and confirm it was all real. In the end, though, I took a breath of frosty air and slid through the gap. Thanks for listening. I hope you had a good time. I welcome your feedback and your comments. If you're interested in joining our Facebook group, you can see it there above our email. We'll have the next chapter of Anna Shoots ready for you sometime early next week, and I hope you have a good day. Thanks.